You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. These are the only women these men can't control. When I received the dinner invitation, I did not look closely enough at the guest list. This invitation was for me and my patron, a wealthy man who expects exclusivity. He calls me his darling and delight. He is jealous as Hades. And my younger lover, impetuous, passionate, foolish, he's also to be at this party. My patron is not a bad man. He pays me well for my time, but it is not enough to support me the rest of my life. I am his hetera, not his wife, and my younger lover, he is willing to pay a scandalous amount for an afternoon tryst in secret, no one else knowing. When my patron loses interest, I am hoping my younger lover will take his place. I am nobody's wife. I cannot afford monogamy. For the past year, I have kept them both in my orbit, circling each other, dancing the dance of fascination. A refusal here, a come hither later. One must never be too easy. But now my patron believes he has won me, and my lover is willing to duel to the death. This will be a dangerous party. My patron sits close at my side at the party, his hand settled on my knee. My lover seethes from across the table. I send him surreptitious glances so he knows I have not yet forgotten him. But I lean in to my patron. I hang on his words. I let him believe the fiction of my fascination. It is, after all, what he's paying for. My lover watches us both, his gaze burning into me from across the room. He looks ready to erupt. 
I tap my finger against my lips to calm him, to let him know I think of him. I slip water into my wine when no one is looking. I must remain sharp. Into my patron's glass I pour wine unwatered. He drinks and starts to raise his voice. If I let him get too drunk, will he and my lover fight right here? Or will he fall into a peaceful sleep? There are three or four other men here, all in my outer orbit. Perhaps one can become the next inflamed lover, desperate for a secret tryst, when I need one. I must not ignore them either, must make each man feel as if he is the only one in the room. The evening ends, the guests rise, I send a look to my lover, go out before me, whatever part of your body I can touch, I will. This will keep him from challenging my patron in the street. But if my patron notices, there will be a fight tonight at home, where I would rather there be harmony. This delicate dance between the desires of men, it is not for the faint of heart. I rise from my couch and go out into the night, the men trailing after. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Yeah, it is. It sure is. We are still talking about sex workers because we cannot stop talking about sex workers in ancient Greece. I love this topic. It's a little darker than I thought it would be. It's an excellent topic. These are no parts one, parts two, or anything else. You can listen to them all independently. And that is what I love so much about this season, Jenny. And just a heads up, we are going to be discussing rape in this episode. I think most of that conversation comes towards the end. Yeah, and we're talking about sex workers, and this was a, a, you know, a harsh reality that they all faced. So, in our last episode, we introduced you to the world of sex workers in ancient classical Greece, the Porni, independent sex workers, male and female, at all levels of society, and finally, the glorious, glittering Hetire. But we ended before we could party with them. That's not cool. We're not going to pull that on you guys today. We've secured us all invitations to the most exclusive all-male parties called Symposia in Classical Greece. I know how we did it because we're ladies. Oh, wait, I do know how we did it. Oh, we know how we did it, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. So we're going to hang out with the Hitari, drink our faces off, flirt outrageously with everyone in range, and debate with the philosophers until the sun comes up. It's time to go to our party. So what were these incredible parties that Hatire went to all the time? Let's talk about it. These were the symposia. Symposia were normally all-male banquets and formal drinking parties where elite high-ranking men and only men gathered to play ridiculous drinking games, boast about their exploits, celebrate victories in athletic or poetic competitions, and introduce young men into society. Normally, these were off-limits to women, at least quote-unquote respectable women, if you know what I mean. Well, that's clearly not us. Clearly not us. That's why we're going to the symposium. In ancient Greece, the most elite symposia were often gathering places for philosophers to have long intellectual conversations. In fact, some of the most famous philosophical tracts from this time period, the Socratic Dialogues, Plato's Symposium, Xenophon's Symposium, were set in symposia. Many of these elite banquets are depicted on ancient Greek, even Etruscan artwork. Elite homes in ancient Greece in some periods usually had men's and women's quarters. The women's quarters were set in the back of the house, away from the street, and women would generally spend most of their time back there, especially when their husbands had guests over. The men's quarters was a place for men-only socializing, and these rooms were where wealthy elite men hosted symposia. 
This is how it would work. The men would gather on cushioned couches, pushed against three walls of a square room. Nine was said to be the ideal number for such a dinner party. But depending on the size of the room, there might be as many as seven to 15 couches in a room, allowing for up to 30 participants. Sometimes there were rules about who had to sit up and who got to recline. In Macedonian Greece, for instance, men weren't allowed to recline on a couch until they had killed their first wild boar. So this was like a, I don't know, some kind of an initiation thing. Oh yeah, I gotta kill that boar, otherwise you're not a dude. You gotta demonstrate your masculinity by killing things. Very ancient world. Ugh. There would be food and wine at this party. Lots of wine. A master of ceremonies, or symposiarch, would oversee the mixing of the wine and determine how strong it would be, depending on if this was the type of party where smart men lounge around having smart intellectual conversations, or the kind of get-together that eventually descends into an orgy. I mean, there's really two ways this could go. I don't understand why you just can't have both. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think a lot of the time it was both, or it eventually became both, for those who, you know, stayed past last call. That's when the party gets weird. (laughs) That's when shit gets real weird, and you're either down for the weirdness or you are not. (laughs) So the wine would be served from a crater or a massive container that enslaved boys would dip amphoras into and then fill each man's cup from the amphoras. Kind of like a giant cauldron. A cauldron of Prosecco, Jenny. I mean, it wouldn't have been Prosecco, but Prosecco. (laughs) Unwatered Prosecco. Think about it. (laughs) I know. Well, I mean, I imagine the Prosecco we are drinking now. Well, first off, they didn't have it. But if they had it, they would consider it very watered. Because their Prosecco would have just been like straight rubbing alcohol pretty much. I think that's kind of how alcohol was. Like, it's, it's really hard to say, but that's the sense I get of things. I think the picture that I get, and I don't know because I haven't done a deep dive into the alcohol content of various wines. Although we did talk about it for the Falernian episode and now I forget. The sense that I get is that the alcohol content of unwatered wine was probably a lot higher than wine today, and you had to put water in it to decide how strong you wanted your drink to be. Exactly. You were kind of like making a perfect alcoholic cake where you have to decide exactly how much alcohol to water ratio in order to have the best night. Look, if you're just going to drink the wine to have a beverage and you want to kill all the bacteria, even though you don't know there's bacteria, but this is what you do so people don't die of drinking bad water in the ancient world then you just put a little wine into some water. But if you want the evening to descend into an orgy, I don't know, maybe you just drink it straight. Maybe. Maybe you put a little bit of honey in there. Maybe you put a little bit of... I don't know. I don't know what they put in there. I mean, I probably should at this point, but I don't. Anyway, so getting back to our symposia, there would be drinking games. And we talked about one, Cotabus, in our episode on Dionysus. It's the one that fills me with rage. This is a drinking game where people drink wine and then hurl the dregs at a target, usually from a lounging position. Scoila, or competitive drinking songs, was another form of entertainment. One person would start singing a very filthy song, and someone else was supposed to jump in and drunkenly improvise the end. Drunken rhetorical contests were also a big feature of these parties. Oh my god, Jenny, you and I, drunken filthy songs. Yeah, I think we'd do well at this. I think we'd slay. <laughs> I just think about the fact that, like, Cut of Us is, like, this ultimate, like, male game of privilege where, like, you're just throwing shit around the house and then somebody has to clean it up. And in reality, it would be a woman or an enslaved person who has to clean it up. And I'm just looking around at my life and I'm like, that would be me. I'd be looking at you assholes like, why are you doing this? That's fine. This is going to be my whole day tomorrow is scrubbing up your mess. I can 
could see how it might be fun to play, like, if you were outside on a really nice summer night. But, like, inside? Why would you do that? It's awful. And that wine is just going to stick around and the smell of it. I mean, that's, I guess, why you have people who are just going to scrub it down and clean it for you. So it's like it never happened because privilege monster. I feel like Kodobos is just highlighting the fact that elite ancient Greek men were just absolute privilege monsters. Yeah. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So musicians, dancers and other hired entertainers were also a common form of entertainment at these parties. Musicians would play the flute, the alos, or a woodwind instrument similar to the oboe, or perhaps the barbiton, which was a stringed instrument similar to the lyre. These musicians and dancers were usually young, attractive women or boys, sex workers. I'm not 100% sure if these were independent sex workers who were working their connections to get gigs at these lucrative parties. To get the invites, yeah. Right. And I could imagine that it would be if you were an independent sex worker trying to work your way up or if you were porni, then either way, this would be a gig that you might want to get because these would be rich men who might become your patron and pay your way to freedom or make you a hetera and elevate you to the top of the top. So I feel like these might have been very sought after gigs for sex workers at many different levels. Absolutely. There's an excellent book that just came out. I think the paperback is out this autumn by Elodie Harper, I believe, called The Wolf Den. And she shows us the Roman version of a symposia, and it is fascinating. Yeah, and I think she's drawing from a lot of the same research sources that we're drawing from because I'm reading it right now and I'm seeing a lot of parallels. Like, it's one of those things where because you've done this research, I'm like, oh my god, I just want to talk about this book to people. Anyway, so sometimes things would get completely out of hand. Here's a quote from the play Semele or Dionysus, written by the playwright Eubulus in 375 BC. Only fragments survive of this play. And what I like about the play is there were a lot of plays that I was using as sources that were written by Romans about ancient Greek sex workers, kind of hundreds of years after and in a different place in time. But this is one of the ones that's directly from the time period. Only fragments survive of this play, but one of the fragments is set at a symposium at which the symposiarch, basically the master of ceremonies and the person in charge of mixing the wine to determine what kind of party this is going to be, was none other than Dionysus himself. My man. I knew you were going to love that. My God. (laughs) (laughs) Patron God of the podcast. So in this play, Dionysus explains his strategy for good crater management at his parties. And I'm going to quote. Of course he does. He has a strategy. Everyone thinks he doesn't, but he does. He knows what he's doing. 
Here's how Dionysus manages the crater. Quote, For sensible men, I prepare only three craters, one for health, which they drink first, the second for love and pleasure, and the third for sleep. After the third one is drained, wise men go home. The fourth crater is not mine anymore. It belongs to bad behavior. The fifth is for shouting. The sixth is for rudeness and insults. The seventh is for fights. The eighth is for breaking the furniture. The ninth is for depression. The tenth is for madness and unconsciousness. I mean, I feel like what Dionysus is saying here kind of could correspond pretty much to how many glasses of wine you have today. Like, you know... After you've had sort of that big, third, huge glass of wine, if you're sensible, you're like, you know what, it might be time to leave this party. But then the fourth one, you're like, oh, maybe I'll just get a little, woo, wild. And then after that, boy, it's just, it's a long, slow decline. It's not even a long, slow decline. It's a quick decline into madness. I think this description, this paragraph I just read could describe many of my nights out in, you know, younger, less less wise and mature. What, what the fuck am I talking about? Like yesterday. This could describe our Spartacus Mondays. There's always a point where I'm like, if I stop drinking, I'm going to have a great time and be a really happy person and not have to worry about it. And then someone just pops by and they're like, would you just like another glass of wine? And you're like, yeah, let's keep this going. And you know, that is the glass that's going to tip you into hangover and misery the next day and possibly something you'll regret tonight. Oops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll decide I'm just going to dance on a table or kiss some random person or sing some body drunken debauched song in a McDonald's. <laughs> and now you have to send people apology texts and hope they're still talking to you. Oh, God. I'm sorry I broke all your furniture. Moving on. <laughs> so, quote unquote, respectable women, so clearly not me, were absolutely not supposed to attend symposia. If your husband was throwing one, you are supposed to retire to the women's quarters and keep the door resolutely locked, possibly barred. Possibly with furniture in front of it. Oh, yeah. Any, any non-broken furniture. But there was a class of women who regularly attended symposia, who actually kind of had to attend symposia. The symposia were their workplace. These women were the hetere. Hetere would typically attend symposia as the guests of their wealthy lovers, and also sort of as entertainment. They were expected to provide witty, sparkling conversation. But symposia were also a workplace for hetere to meet new, to meet and attract new lovers, which was crucial to a hetera earning enough in her prime to retire in comfort without having to resort to wool working in her retirement. And this is the thing. I mean, we talked about this in the last episode about the economics of being a hetera. And often you had to make a lot of money when you are at your peak earning potential. You could definitely work as a sex worker when you're older than that. But your prime earning power was when you were considered the most young and beautiful and fresh. 16 to 22. We're out of high school, so we're well past that point. We're well past our prime, according to the ancient Greeks. And you know what? We got better with age. Yeah. So anyway, so like the economics are you have to make a lot of money fast if you want to retire without having to do other forms of sex work. There are various other options that you have. But the ideal here is to have a nice retirement nest egg that you accumulate while you're working in your prime earning time period. So you have to work every angle. You have to get 
as many rich men on the hook for you as you possibly paying outrageous prices for you as you possibly can. And this involved walking a tightrope. And the symposia would be a great place to like it would be a great place to do it because it's where your target market congregates. Oh, yeah. Imagine this is like your ocean with all your big fishes and octopuses and white whales. All your white whales are here. It's a room full of whales, and you're here to catch as many as possible. And this involved walking a tightrope because the whales get jealous. No, not whales. Whales are lovely. They don't get jealous. The ancient Greek whales did. (laughs) There's an essay that lays this out really well. It's called A Courtesan's Choreography, Female Liberty and Male Anxiety at the Roman Dinner Party by Sharon L. James. So she's writing about Roman dinner parties here, but the culture was really similar. There are a lot of reasons why you can extrapolate what she talks about back to ancient Greece. The Romans appropriated a lot from Greek culture, and Greek culture was kind of like Roman patriarchy on steroids. Like, they were they were more patriarchal than the Romans, from my perspective, and that is saying a lot, because the Romans were extremely patriarchal. So I believe that whatever anxieties are highlighted here about Roman men's feelings around independent women would be even stronger among elite ancient Greek men. So that's my thesis. That's why I'm using this essay to apply to both. I support that. So in both cultures, men were raised in intensely patriarchal environments where they were taught from birth that they were entitled to have complete life or death control over the women in their lives, both enslaved and their own family. All the women in their orbit would be socially and financially dependent upon them. That's a real thing to just wrap your brain around. Yeah. Hetere would have been women in these men's world who weren't financially or socially dependent on them and who could say no to them. And James's thesis is that this drove them absolutely batshit. And it makes sense because Hetere isn't really interested in climbing the social ladder the way a wife would be. And she has her own money because she's allowed to keep her own money because she's free. Exactly. So she doesn't need these men. I mean, she does need these men, but... Oh, she absolutely needs these men, but not the way that they want her to need them. Exactly. So James draws from three sources from ancient Rome, and we've discussed why this is also applicable. Plays and other pieces of literature written by Romans, but set during classical Athens during the height of Hatira culture. One is a play called the Asinaria by a Roman playwright named Plautus, which meant Flatfoot. He was also a clown. He has an interesting backstory. Not going into it here, but it's kind of cool. This play has been translated as the one about the asses. I love that title. (laughs) It's the one about the asses, you guys. It's a comedy about sex workers, and it's the source for several common sayings that we know today, including practice what you preach and you must spend money to make money. Those come from the one about the asses. James shows how intensely controlling these men could get with their hotire by zeroing in on one scene in the Asinaria. In this scene, a man named Argurippus? Argurippus? Argurippus. Argurippus. We'll go with that. Argurippus. Argurippus, yeah. We're just going to continue to struggle with this. Argurippus wants to draw up a contract with a popular hatira whose name is also equally unpronounceable. I think it's Felinium. These two had a lot in common, starting with their names, which we mispronounce on our podcast. (laughs) That is what they have in common. He and a friend are working together in this scene to hammer out the terms of this contract. Felinium isn't there. It's like him and his friend discussing what terms of a sex worker contract they're going to hold Felinium to. 
So hetirae in classical Athens sign contracts with their lovers. It's hard to tell what the actual terms were or how specific these contracts got, but presumably there were some expectations with regard to the hetira's sexual behavior and time, and others on the amount the patron would pay. It does seem that frequently one of the common terms, especially for the highest paying contracts, was that the hetira had to be monogamous. But this could present a real problem for a hetira who had a limited amount of time to rack up her entire retirement income. I mean, Jenny, if we had to make all the money we needed for retirement between the ages of like 13 and 22, I guess it's the wool for me. <laughs> I know. We're, we're going to be wool working well into, into our into our dotage. <laughs> wool working for life. <laughs> wool for life, baby. So here are the terms. Agrippas. Argarippus. Here are the terms Argarippus once Felinium. Felinium. I got it. <laughs> so here are the terms Argarippus once Felinium to follow in her contract. Right. Let's get to these bullshit terms. So she can't let any other men into her house, even platonic friends or the lover of a girlfriend, like her friend's boyfriend or whatever. Actually, wait, scratch that. No, nobody can come over at all. No girlfriends, no boyfriends, no nobody. She has to post a do not disturb note on her door permanently. She's not allowed to hold parties or invite anyone over ever, ever. I mean, that is intense jealousy. That's just the first point. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'd be out. I'd be like, no one? I'm what? A, no, I'm going to go crazy. She has to get rid of all her X-rated art, which would have been normal in a Hetera's house. If she still has any in her house within four days of taking Argrippus's money, he can pile it up and burn it in the street if he wants to. She can't write letters to anyone or even have any wax tablets in the house with which to write letters. She can't have any writing material. She can't write anything to anyone. She's not allowed to do anything ever. She's not allowed to interact with other people, basically. She can't ever look at other men if one crosses her path she has to immediately avert her eyes. Oh no, mustn't look. Avert your eyes immediately. Avert your eyes. My eyes are, well, I mean, the eyes are the windows of seduction, but it's like even men just looking at her. That's the problem, Jen. She can go to parties, but only with Argarippus. And she's only allowed to drink when it's with him. But when she does drink with him, she has to drink only when he drinks, matching him glass for glass, and only take wine from his hand. She must have exactly as much wine as he has, no more and no less. At dinner parties, she must not touch any man's foot with her own. She must not give her hand to anyone to help her up from a couch. She's not allowed to nod or wink at any man or make any nonverbal affirmative signals of agreement during conversations at dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is this? Oh, I know what this is. We're going to talk about what it is. Don't worry. So there are a lot of nitpicky rules governing her facial expressions, when she coughs or has the sniffles, and what she can and can't do with her mouth and lips while coughing and sniffling. Yeah, she doesn't want to look too alluring while coughing or sniffling. She can pray to goddesses, but not gods. If she wants to pray to a male god, she has to ask Argarippus, who can pray on her behalf, because, you know, she might wind up attracting the interest of the god, and... I mean, let's be honest... <laughs> A hundred percent agree with Argarippus here. <laughs> that actually might be a good safety measure for all women. What do I know? Right? Just don't don't be alone in the room with a male god in ancient Greece. With maybe the exception of Dionysus, but yes. 
completely. I mean, especially Zeus. Stay away. Anyway, uh, in bed, the Hitari had to lay perfectly still, but also be active and enthusiastic. She's got to encourage you with those eyes, but not move a muscle. She's not supposed to get out of the bed to like to light the lamp or turn off the lamp. Situations where she can and cannot get out of bed. But then the guy is like, the one guy's like, um, oh, well, I'll just put in that she has to lie completely still in bed all the time. And the other guy's like, wait, no, I want her to be an active participant in sex, though. So, like, you know, she can move if, she, if it's for my benefit, but not hers. If it does good things for me, it's fine. If it does good things for her, no. So I just want to pause here. And remark on how insanely controlling our Gerippus is, especially at dinner parties. There is some real over-policing of facial expressions going on here. Our Gerippus wants to control every aspect of this woman's behavior, especially at dinner parties when she's around other men or other prospective clients. He writes out what facial expression she can or can't make in the contract. She can't look at other men. She can't touch other men. She can't make affirmative noises in conversation. She can't let another man help her up from a couch. She can't cough or sneeze or sniffle in a way that might be construed as provocative. You get the picture. He's really concerned about the signals she might be sending to other men right under his nose. It's obviously insanely controlling and abusive, and I'm absolutely not condoning that in any way i would never i would never god but i am gonna say that there is a reason argorippus was doing this it's not just completely out of the blue no because he's very aware that i'm paying for your lifestyle and i'm taking you to these dinners to show you off but i know that you're still fishing you're still looking for the next great white whale right you're not supposed to poach other clients under my nose you're supposed to be all focused on me And showing everyone how focused you are on me and how much they want you but can't have you. Exactly. That's part of what elevates him in the eyes of his peers is that this beautiful Hatara is all about him. And that's the allure of essentially keeping and having a Hatara. So wealthy patrons may have expected their Hatari to be monogamous, may have even written it into their contracts. But the reality was that most Hatari couldn't afford to be monogamous. They had a limited amount of time to make their fortune. Like, girls gotta hustle. Right. That meant they had to work as hard as they could to keep the money coming in while they were still at the apex of their youth and beauty, ugh, and the height of their earning power. I mean, this is just like, everything about this just really enforces why we have this culture where we throw people away over the age of 40. Like, we're just like, ah, I'm going to write you off now. It's like, nope, nope, nope. Let's just remember that Caesar and uh, Marius didn't achieve anything great until much later in life. We still live in a culture today where women in certain professions especially are valued primarily for their beauty and their careers end after a very short amount of time. Like if you look at, um, you know, a model or an actress or even some singers, like the apex of their career might be quite short depending on the profession i'm gonna say even in the corporate world we are trained to go towards the young beautiful next new thing we are not interested in experience and we are not interested in women over the age of 40 the way we are in women who are 25 to 35 after 35 you are you are lucky to keep your position young women are not supposed to earn a lot in corporate jobs either that's not your prime earning power at all like you don't even have the chance to earn enough to support you in your retirement and say fuck it after you're done most women are starting to really hit their prime earning potential towards their late 30s 40s and that's the point at which they're saying like well not their prime but just their earning potential that's the point at which they're being told well we can get somebody younger than you prettier than you more in line with what we want yeah 
So this meant that Hiteri had to work as hard as they could to keep the money coming in while they were still at the apex of their youth and beauty and the height of their earning power. Otherwise, they would find themselves working the streets again or dependent on a male family member or, worst case scenario, having to spin wool. Ahatira always had to be looking for her next big paycheck. Ideally, perhaps there would be one very wealthy main patron with several secondary patrons in rotation and a few third stringers waiting in the wings, kept interested and beguiled with a complicated dance of invitation and refusal. There could even be a few fourth stringers that the Hatira could make a practice of turning down to give an impression of exclusivity. The Hatira was no common porn eye, after all, who has to take all comers. That's, like, this is the illusion she's maintaining here. Like, if, you know, elite men get the impression that she just takes all comers, then they don't think she has any value. I mean, and that's a shitty thing to say, but that seems to be the case. It's supply and demand, right? She's creating scarcity so that in order for you to want the thing and pay the premium amount, there is less of said thing, which is happens to be a person in her time and her expertise. And in order to do that, she has to create a scarcity. If too many first, second, and third stringers dropped out of her orbit, she could always elevate someone from that fourth string. And after being turned down for so long, no doubt he'd be happy to pay outrageous prices. This way, there would always be someone waiting in the wings to take the place of a wealthy patron who lost interest or who got sent off to war or died. All this had to be very carefully orchestrated. Symposia were a place where the Hatara would be surrounded by her target demographic. Wealthy, high-ranking, horny men with money to burn and no fucking scruples and just assholes throwing wine and everything. Sorry, I can't seem to stop myself. Anyway, this was the Hatara's workplace. This was her hunting ground, and she had to always be hustling at these parties meeting and piquing the interest of new prospects, and maintaining the interest of her second and third stringers without alienating them. Of course, the primary patron would not be too keen on his satira, beguiling other men right under his nose. Oh, no, no, no. These guys could be extremely controlling. She might even be under contract not to stray. So a clever Hatira would have to figure out the ways to do it without her primary patron noticing. With secret signals, a flutter of the eyelids, subtle flirting, the occasional secret rendezvous in the coat room. You get the idea. I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds kind of sexy. <laughs> I mean, sure, it sounds kind of sexy until you realize that, like, she doesn't really have a choice here. Like, I'm not saying that this was non-consensual in the way a poor nice life would be non-consensual. Like, there are probably girls who really thrived on this. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't without its dangers, which we're going to get to. Exactly. Maybe it makes sense that Argorippus would be hyper aware of Felinian's every move, every gesture, every facial expression, every twitch of the eyelid when they're out at a dinner party, because Felinium is never not hustling. That girl is working it all the time. She's working it all the time, and half of the game is hustling without him noticing. And that's also kind of like the game for him. It's like, she would never do this. She'd never hustle in front of me or or without me knowing. I know everything she's doing. And, like, there's there's so much, like, dark, weird, almost attractiveness to it. There is absolutely an eroticism to this. Like, I could see this scenario being, like, really sexy erotica. Like, if this is all a consensual game, then it could be a really sexy consensual game. But it's probably not. <laughs> but let's be real, this is the ancient world, so... <laughs> but yeah, it's complicated, which is why it's so interesting to talk about. So the other thing I want to draw attention to in that contract we just read is the drinking. Notice how in the contract it says that Felinium had to drink exactly as much as Argorippus drinks. No more, 
no less. He's very, very concerned about her alcohol intake here. There's a reason for that, too. A Hatira trying to hustle up new clients at a symposium wouldn't want her current primary breathing down her neck. Plays and elegies featuring Hatire sometimes depict a sort of shell game, as James calls it, that Hatire would play with watered and unwatered wine at symposia, slipping unwatered, very strong wine into a primary lover's cup so he'll get drunk and pass out, leaving her to flirt with others with impunity, all while the Hatira ensures she gets more water in her own cup so she can stay alert. I mean, that's also dangerous, though, because, like, unless everyone at the party gets super drunk, it's gonna go back to her primary. So, part of the fun of the symposia involved drinking and drinking games, and the Hitira was supposed to play along. But when trying to navigate the competing sexual interests of a number of men, beguiling everyone just the right amount, making every man think he was her only focus so as not to trigger anyone's insane controlling jealousy... Ahatira had to stay on her toes. She could not just get trashed and relax. She was at work. And I mean, I feel her. I feel her. Anyone who's ever, like, gone to a work party where everyone around you is getting drunk and you're like, no, no, I have to not get drunk and be the professional here. Everyone's like, have another drink. And you're like, no, it's fine. I'm good. I'm good with what I got. You know? Well, that's the thing about it. Like, she had to look like she was having fun and drinking along, but she couldn't get trashed for lots of different reasons. Yeah. Safety being one issue, and also she's trying to play this elaborate game with all these men here. Absolutely. However, alcoholism was sometimes associated with the hetire as well, especially older ex hetire For instance, in the Asinaria, Felinium's mother, a former hetira herself, and Felinium's pimp is a heavy drinker. There were some strong sexual currents going on at Symposia, and if the hetira didn't navigate those currents carefully, there could be consequences. James quotes passages from Ovid's Amores here, and this time, the speaker isn't a primary lover, but one of the second string guys, a totally infatuated side hustle, freaking out about seeing the hetera of his affections hanging out with her primary partner at a dinner party he's attending. So here's the passage. This is from one of the second string lovers of a hetera at a party with her primary, and he's just freaking out. So your man is coming to the same dinner party with us. I pray may it be his last meal. So must I only look at my beloved girl during the dinner? Will the one who enjoys being touched be another? And will you snuggle up, cuddled nicely in another man's lap? Will he put his hands on your neck whenever he wants? Arrive before your man. I don't see what can be done if you come before him, but still arrive before. When he presses the couch and you, his companion, go with a modest expression to recline, secretly touch my foot. Look at me and my nods and make an expressive face. Pick up and return secret notes. I'll speak communicative silent words with my eyebrows. Pick up those words with your fingers, words marked in the wine. When you think of our lovemaking, touch your blushing cheeks with your tender thumb. When I say or do things, darling, that please you, twist your ring all about on your finger. Touch the table with your hand, as people do in prayer. When you're wishing evils on your man, which he deserves, whatever he mixes up for you to taste, make him drink it. Then you lightly ask the boy for what you want. The goblet you give back, I'll take it first for my drinking, and where you drank, I'll drink from that part. Ask your man to drink, but don't kiss him while you ask. And while he's drinking, sneak in pure wine if you can. 
If he passes out, taken over by wine and sleep, the place and the situation will advise us. When you get up to go home, we'll all get up. Be sure to go out in the middle of the crowd. Find me in the crowd, or I'll find you. Whatever part of me you can touch there, touch. Okay, so what's interesting here is you see him giving the Hetira all these instructions to send him secret signals, the exact kind that the lover in the Asinaria was concerned about, touching his foot secretly, sending secret looks and little touches, writing messages in wine, and these were two different writers, um, Plautus and Ovid. So this is clearly in the zeitgeist. Absolutely. But it's also so controlling. It's also about making any woman's facial expression or her gestures or anything be about you, be like an obsessive sort of controlling bit about you. And and I think that absolutely goes back to the idea that these are the only women these men can't control. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's the thing. Like this is the secondary lover and the primary lover here in this orbit are both insanely controlling people because they can't they both know on some level that they cannot control this woman. And it's making them both nuts. Like it's making them both feel like they have to control her down to her facial expressions. He's also telling her to slip pure wine into her primary lover's cup. So ideally, he'll pass out drunk and leave them alone to flirt with impunity. So anyway, this does provide a hint of how a Hitara might possibly handle competing lovers at one of these parties, but it also shows a window into how much these men were just dying to control these women and how deep that need went. So in another poem, Ovid flips the viewpoint to that of the primary lover who the Hetira thinks is passed out at this dinner party, but who actually witnesses her making out with a second-string guy. And here's that passage. Quote, I myself saw, wretched and sober, when you thought I was sleeping, your misbehavior. With the wine put away, I saw you both saying many things with gesticulating eyebrow. A good part of your voice was in those nods. Your eyes were not silent, and there were notes drawn in the wine on the table, and there was some letter writing with your finger. Then, truly, I saw you, exchanging wicked kisses. It was clear to me that tongues were exchanged. What are you doing, I shout? Where are you now taking my delight? I'll throw my hands on my mistress according to my rights. These kisses are shared mutually back and forth between you and me. Why should a third party enter into those enjoyments? I like the part about the gesticulating eyebrows. Hitara did not do as good a job as she thought because the primary lover here is still awake and he is spoiling for some violence. He wants to get into it. Yeah, there's a quote, it was as if I wanted to tear her hair all done up as it was and tear her tender cheeks with anger in my passion. The point is that he's now getting violent, right? The stakes are more than just hurt feelings. There was absolutely a threat of jealous violence if the Hetira didn't navigate all of these competing sexual interests adroitly, keeping all her first and second and third and fourth string guys on the hook, making each one think her attention is only for him, and not letting anyone get too jealous or realize what's really going on. This is a tough game to play. There's so much emotional labor. I feel like I would be good at that because I'm good at emotional labor. I would, I don't know, would I be good at that? No, you're a unicorn. I don't think you'd be good at this. You'd have to be a Phryne or like an Aspasio who it's like. I'd have to elevate myself above the game. 
You would, whereas I would be stuck playing this game forever. According to James, quote, The social status of these women puts them beyond the control of any man. They are not, like brides or brothel prostitutes, the object of negotiation between men. They cannot, like slaves, be purchased and owned. They cannot, like streetwalkers, be rented for an hour only. And they cannot, like wives, be married and absorbed into domestic possession. Thus, the elite male's status, relative to these women, loses its rock-firm standing of mastery. The citizen lover must persuade this woman and this woman only. Her will and her desire become uniquely relevant. As the lover persists in trying to ascertain and secure his position, his standing in her life, the frustration engendered by this situation regularly seeks an outlet in physical, verbal, and emotional violence, as if force offers the elite male his only recourse. Such violence is a source of shame to him, however, and often renders him emotionally weaker than before. So James proposes that free hetere were destabilizing to men's sense of themselves as masters of women, a distinct feature of their gender in the Greek and Roman worlds. And this was almost like a gender identity crisis. If he can't control this woman, is he even a man? And what do men do when their masculinity is extremely fragile and challenged? They resort, in a story as old as time, to violence. I'm not going to lie, Jenny, we're still looking at the repercussions of this today. Obligatory, many men do not resort to violence when their masculinity is challenged. However, this is a big thing. It's a big cultural thing. This is something that you see enacted over and over and over again. And you see it a lot of times in the violence that is against women, particularly against domestic violence and partnerships, and also in the sort of mass shooting violence that we see committed a lot of times by incels. Again, we're not saying that all men do this. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying this is something that we see in the ancient world that has carried through in some respect to today. The idea of women not being controlled by men, not sleeping with men when they want to, not being under a man's purview and thumb can send some men into jealous and sometimes lethal rages. And that's absolutely true. And it's very clear here in the story of the Hittire, and it's clear in modern times. Like, yeah, absolutely. Incels are an outgrowth of this, in my opinion. They are. And I mean, you know, we still live in a world where there is domestic violence against domestic partners, and it is perpetrated for these reasons that we're seeing here in the ancient sources, because, you know, in today's world, we have more autonomy to choose what we will and won't do. And some men really can't deal with that. So jealous violence was one reason it could be dangerous to be a Hetera at one of these symposia. But there's another reason, too. The Hetera was an entertainer and a sex worker, too. How free was she to turn down sex at the party, either with the primary patron or with other men? How common was rape at these parties? I mean, and this is where we get into the conversation about rape. So we're going to talk about that now. So if this is not something you want to hear about, that's fine. We'll see you in, in a week when we've got a new episode. Yeah. So just looking at the situation here, it seems like at least at some parties, the ones intended to devolve into orgies, this could have been a very real danger. These were groups of men who felt entitled to women's bodies. These particular women were outside the bounds of what they considered, quote-unquote, respectable womanhood. And it wasn't even considered adultery to have sex with a sex worker. Ancient Greeks were not known for their nuanced understanding of consent. If the primary partner wasn't jealous about his hetera and wanted her to, like, relax and have a good time and go with the flow and have sex in the group sex and she didn't want to, what happens here? 
In the last episode we put out on this, I mentioned in passing that there were scenes on attic pottery with women, presumed to be sex workers, being hit by sandals during group sex. There's some sandal hitting, and I feel like we have to talk, we have to talk about the sand, it's the elephant in the room here, we must discuss the sandal hitting. Smack! (laughs) Right, Jen, that's exactly how it goes. So... The women in these scenes are often presumed to be Hetera at Symposia, and I'm gonna we're gonna elaborate on that a little bit now because we cannot not talk about the sandal hitting. So sandal hitting was a common theme on some ancient Greek pottery. It shows up most commonly along a continuum. On one end of the continuum is in the context of punishment. A parent or adult is striking a child with a sandal, presumably to punish the child. On the other end of the continuum, it shows up in an explicitly erotic context, including during sex. The sex scenes are usually group sex scenes, with a number of men having sex with one woman. One man is shown holding a sandal, sometimes upraised, to hit the woman as he has sex with her. The setting, couches, drinking vessels, and musical instruments everywhere, and groups of men, is often construed to be a symposia. The sandal hitting, the way I kind of started thinking about it was this is kind of like spanking now, you know, like it can be abusive. It can be in the context of a parent or adult punishing a child. It can be erotic and consensual. It can be used during sex, but non-consensual. Like it's kind of it's got an erotic charge, but there are a lot of layers here. Yeah. And I mean, you're not going to be able to really get context from addict pottery like i'm not i'm not saying the importance of attic pottery or what they tell us about the ancient world isn't important but it's not a place where you're going to get the nuances yeah so it's a little confusing and i've seen this framed in different ways these could be construed to be consensual sex scenes that have some sandal spanking involved and that's all consensual and kind of down and dirty and whatever and i've seen them also construed as you know this is physical abuse and these are rape scenes In the darker interpretation, the evidence cited is usually that the sex acts that the woman is usually shown doing were considered kind of degrading for women in ancient Greece, like blowjobs and sex with multiple men. I mean, sex with that connotation can be consensual and enthusiastically enjoyed. I mean, Messalina. Why are we saying Messalina? Because don't you remember Messalina and like the imperial brothel and the fact that she loved sex so much that she had like all these men having sex with her in the imperial brothel? I mean, that was sort of used to like denigrate her a little bit in the sources. But the reality was like, what if she was just a woman who really enjoyed sex? What if the odd thing to the ancient world was that there's a woman who really enjoys having sex, not being forced into it, not being paid for it, not being spat on like we learned in the last episode? What if there's just women who actually enjoy sex and and have a voracious sexual appetite and are up for this kind of thing you know like and that's that's absolutely true like women's sexuality is vast and powerful and look she showed up to this party with gilded nipples for a reason she did i think that's another side of this is this terrifying idea of female sexuality where it's like well what if Number one, we can't control them. Number two, it's a woman in power. And number three, what if she really likes it? And like, what if she knows exactly what she wants and how to do it? What if all of these guys at this party try to satisfy this woman and not one of us can satisfy her because we're just not men enough? There's all these kinds of weird layers. And of course, this could also be rape, which is horrible. Which is also horrible, and I'm not suggesting that. I'm just giving you this example of Messalina, because I I like to reclaim her a little bit, because a lot of times she's just seen as this scheming, sexually ferocious, kind of wild, evil character, and I just think she's more complicated than that. And also the sexual voraciousness is often tied into the evilness in a way that 
is not cool and is just part of the patriarchy trying to suppress women's sexuality. I'm not saying she didn't do bad things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just putting her up as an example of another time we see women in the ancient sources with a lot of power. Men do not like it when women use their sexuality to elevate their status. That upsets them very, very much. Well, it's, it's, it's again, the control. It's this idea of, like, does this woman exert control over me that I do not want her to exert over me? And that's why Messalina was so dangerous, because they're like, she's Claudius's beautiful young wife, and he's totally besotted by her. And, you know, she's acting like a hetera or a concubine, and she's kind of pulling all the strings, and he lets her get away with all of these things. Scary for the fragile men. The other thing I do want to make sure doesn't get lost in this conversation is that there are reasons why historians think that these might be rape scenes. We want to not minimize the fact that women's sexuality can be vast and great and that these may be, in fact, consensual and that that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, number one. But number two, we also don't want to erase the idea that these could be rape scenes because of the way the sex acts were construed in the ancient world. And also, practically, why would a Hatira want to give it away for free to every guy in the room when she's trying to get all of them on the hook to pay for it? This, it's a business decision. Absolutely. And she's trying to get quite a lot of money. Yeah. That's why this is real complicated, these scenes. And the whole point is, the question I was asking when I got into this whole sandal spanking conversation is, how at risk would a Hatira be at these parties of things like rape? And I think that it would have been a real risk. Not saying that it was always a risk and not saying that sometimes they might have wanted to have a party that devolved into an orgy with you as the main attraction. I could see that being fun and exciting if everyone was into it and down. That is the fan fiction. There's erotica about this, I'm sure. And I'm sure it's very sexy, but the reality is that it probably was not always consensual when it happened and it probably did happen. So that's just one other hazard that a Hatira would have to navigate. Also, like, if your primary got real drunk and fell asleep and he, there were no rules about who you weren't, weren't off limits to at the party, that could be real dangerous for you. Absolutely. So there's a danger in keeping your primary awake and there's a danger in letting him fall asleep. Because if he doesn't want to share you, but he's not around to protect you or not conscious to protect you, that's another issue. Yeah. So... There are other stories of Hatirai who explicitly did experience some very harrowing things at Symposia, however. And we will tell you these stories, but right now we're out of time. So we'll have to leave it until our next episode, where we get to know some of the most famous courtesans of ancient Greece. Join us next week for another installment of whatever we're talking about next, which is the famous Hatirai. Of ancient Greece. Maybe, maybe it's something else. We don't know. These might not all drop in order. Yeah. And in the meantime, join us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook. Also, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. For as little as $2 a month, you can get regular episodes a day early and ad-free. Plus, extra special bonus episodes. We have some patrons to thank today. Kyle Pritz. Taylor Davis. And should we thank the new Inimitable Liver? Yeah, and thank you to Robin Roche for uh, becoming an Inimitable Liver. We appreciate you so much. Thank you so much. We appreciate all of your support, and we could not do this podcast without you. Yeah, and if you're not financially able to support the podcast, we totally understand. Just remember to subscribe and rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much, and we will see you um, next week.
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.